Welcome to School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. I work with programs all over the country as a registered dietitian and school nutrition specialist to save operations time and money on everything from employee training, social media marketing, and wellness programs. Every week, I bring you tips, tricks, and inspiration from fellow professionals in school nutrition and related fields. This week, we have Lamore kurtz on the show. Lamore is a dietitian in the New York area with a private practice that focuses heavily on serving children in Head Start and their families. As such, Lamore has a lot of insights about how feeding during the COVID crisis can be made more effective and more safe. I'm really grateful that Lamore took time out of her busy schedule to share what she has learned during the crisis with the rest of us. In addition to those practical tips, we also get a little bit into how to actually handle all the stress of being on the front lines. All right, let's get started. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. Rest of the country as far as to how we're going to manage feeding children during the crisis. And you already being an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs have to be problem solvers. And if you're successful in a business, that means you're a successful problem solver. So I thought you're the perfect person to have on as far as ideas for feeding models that make sense at this time. Well, thank you for all of the compliments and well wishes. Yeah, I think as far as exposure to what's needed on the front lines. New York is definitely highlighted in the U.S. right now. As far as programming specific to school nutrition, we definitely have a long way to go. My dietitians and I have been working on programming for COVID since the day we found out that school closures were instated. So March, I believe it was 17th. You know, we were ready to rock knowing that we had to limit the points of contact for food preparation in order for our families to be fed safely. And where we are right now in New York City is we're still in somewhat old school emergency programming, meaning we're doing what we do at any disaster, which is we're putting together brown bag breakfasts and lunches, and we're making those sites available, those closed school sites available to all parents to come pick up breakfast and lunch for their child between 7.30 a.m. and 12 p.m. And then, you know, we're also, of course, feeding adults because we're talking about the population that LKD Nutrition Health worked with is Head Start. So we're talking about at-risk communities who definitely have the need for food assistance and financial assistance at this time. So they can come pick up food for themselves, these parents who are feeding their children between 7.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. at 1.30 p.m. So we are feeding parents and children. What we're not doing is taking into account the new rules and regulations of this particular pandemic. What Mm. we need to focus on in the programming that LKD Nutrition and Health has been working on and why we're so excited to be here talking about it with you on your podcast And why we're so excited that one of our community partners, celebrity chef JJ Johnson, um, co-founder of Field Trip, 
is actually going to be talking on the Today Show this week about our partnership for food boxes. Oh, that's really exciting. And so the reason that we want to create food boxes as opposed to, you know, feeding on the daily basis is because these boxes are going to contain two weeks worth of fruits, vegetables, shelf-stable grains, proteins, et cetera, that will essentially feed a family. So we're trying to, A, adhere to the quarantine recommendations of two weeks at a time by giving these families two weeks worth of all of the produce and all the protein they could possibly need for their family of three or four or what have you, and lessen the points of contact for food preparation. Because if we're having food service workers come in on subways to these school sites, and even with their gloves and masks, there's so many points of contact that open for contamination, they're putting together sandwiches and they're opening up number 10 cans of, you know, canned fruit and vegetables. And just leaving so much room for exposure and contact with COVID that it doesn't feel safe to continue to feed families in that way as the COVID pandemic continues. So we're really reaching out to points of contact at the Department of Education. We're really reaching out to our political cohorts like Senator Jamal T. Bailey in the Bronx, who's highly connected with our child care site up on 225th Street. We're connecting to our community partners like local chefs and small business owners. Uh, We're connecting to community partners who serve nonprofits exclusively like the Lenox Hill Teaching Kitchen. They're actually putting together cooking classes right now so that parents who receive the food boxes that we're planning to roll out can actually know what to do with some of the scratch items that they may not be familiar with. Wow. And they're going to do all that remotely. Exactly. This is all going to be available remotely. So for the parents that don't have laptops, computers, et cetera, it's okay because they can actually just watch on their iPhone. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. What have been the barriers to getting this done? Because I would think anyone who deals with funding, you understand that you it, we can't change these things on a dime, or at least historically, we haven't been able to. And it seems like the need has certainly shifted because this is totally new territory for everyone. And our previous Absolutely. models for emergency feeding you know, exposure to a pathogen was not the issue. So there are plenty of points of contact and it was probably actually a positive thing because people needed emotional and social support and that doesn't fit right now. So how do we get to a point where we can even do that? How do we fund that? You said you've been reaching out for um, people who could help you possibly with policy change. What has that been like? Uh, Thank you for the question. And yeah, you're exactly right. You know, if this were a hurricane or an earthquake, we would absolutely be following the proper protocol. Right now, we're looking for funding to change from our primary funders for this early childhood population. The population we work with is age two to five, and they're, you know, parents and siblings. So, you know, we're supporting these families with toddlers at home. And Primarily, the funding that we receive to serve them breakfast, lunch, and snack when schools are open is from the Child and Adult Care Food Program. So we're reaching out to our cohorts because there are many registered dietitians within the Child and Adult Care Food Program to expand funding to incorporate these two-week quarantine-friendly food boxes. And what's been happening is the expansion has happened slowly and it's happening surely. So we are very hopeful You know, what used to be funding that was very structured per meal, i.e. we have to have a certain component for the breakfast, lunch, and snack to be reimbursable, is now turning into funding for three days of meals at a time. So they're starting to grow the length of time that we can feed these families in a more 
reasonable way for the current pandemic. And we're hoping, you know, the more traction we get, the more conversation we have with registered dietitians like yourself who work in school food service, the more we'll be able to reach Cuomo and the more we'll be able to reach de Blasio and the more we'll be able to reach the school nutrition point of contact at the Department of Education within New York City so that we can start modeling for the rest of the country what safe, healthy school food service likes for our at-risk community. Mm, that's amazing, honestly. And it's exciting to see someone taking the lead on the East Coast. We, for some reason, don't hear that often. So it's really nice <laughs> to have somebody on my side of the country doing something that's so fresh and innovative and that obviously is putting an understanding of the science first because it, it, everyone has good intentions. We really need to think things through right now because critical thinking is all we have because we don't have a existing model for how to handle this situation. Because Absolutely. other countries maybe are deeper into this, but the way they fund their programs is totally different. And yeah, this is going to be really, really interesting. But your company already was innovating long before this. And I saw where you added a ton of COVID-19 nutrition ed and stress management tools for your clients. And I had wondered how soon were you able to produce those, but they seem to work well with a lot of the materials that you already had. You have a holistic approach to health. A lot of times people just look at one thing or they think they're going to find that magical superfood and all their ailments are going to disappear. But unfortunately, it's really not that simple. Can you explain your food philosophy and your general health philosophy and how it came to be? Absolutely. I mean, I will say with like true transparency, I became a registered dietitian because of disordered eating patterns when I was an adolescent. And well, you that know, makes you like 90% of the dietitians. dietitians. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's just like the shoemaker who's shoeless. Like we all go into our profession to heal ourselves. And if we're lucky on our healing journey, we're helping other people along the way. So as I went through like a negative relationship with food, disordered eating patterns, a negative relationship with over-exercising and exercise injury, and, you know, body image, you know, struggles in general, I thought that diet and exercise were the answer. Luckily, the universe throws us challenges to expand our growth and education, and we get to pass that along. So it's through the loss of my father from a progression of diabetes to heart disease to cancer that mm. I actually experienced my first emotional breakdown related to body image issues. And as I went through my own depression in the grief process and my own anxiety in the grief process, I started to realize like you can't fix yourself with diet and exercise. Like there has to be mental health maintenance. There has to be a holistic approach to health. And so what came through my own healing is I was seeing a therapist or a grief counselor while I was taking meditation classes because I was looking for, I was on a search for calm, peace, mental health, healing. I put together a platform that eventually I trademarked as our education platform for Head Start Communities, which is called Five to Flourish. So it focuses first and foremost on stress management and mindfulness practices. Secondly, on sleep quality enhancement tools. Third, on proper hydration. And then fourth, nutrition and fifth, exercise. So, you know, I'm always telling my clients, whether it be my parents or my site staff, 
Like regardless of what you eat or how much you exercise, if you're overstressed and underrested, it's all out the window. I absolutely believe that. And I think it's a shame that that's so underemphasized. And a lot of times I've seen it in a lot of clients and friends, acquaintances, everybody that people will attribute something that's going on with them health wise to diet. And what's missing is either they're not eating enough because they have some disordered eating going on, but they're like looking for more things to restrict when the actual problem is like, you need to eat something. But then too, sometimes you just need rest and people may think, oh, I need to push myself harder. I need to exercise right now. A lot of us have trouble hearing what our body is asking for. So was meditation something your therapist recommended or that was just something you thought would be healing in addition to the therapy? So, I mean, after my father passed away, I was a hot mess. So it wasn't a recommendation. It was like I was on a search. I did everything. I took life coaching courses and I took meditation courses and I started yoga classes and I reached I, I reached out to chat groups for adult children who had lost parents to cancer. Mm. And I started seeing a therapist who was specialized in grief counseling. And I had just never experienced anxiety and depression before. And honestly, like, I think that that experience of grief has led me to become a health educator as opposed to a dietitian or a nutritionist. Right. It brought in your concept of health and well-being. Absolutely. I think that every curveball we get is an opportunity for us to play bigger. Yeah. And sometimes the harder the experience, the more of a catalyst it is for growth. Absolutely. So it's interesting to see because what we're going through right now is beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's a, it's a crisis and there's a lot of tragedy, but with tragedy always comes massive potential for growth. So it will be interesting to see how we all evolve as Americans, as health practitioners, as people in child nutrition, as we go through this process. When it comes to meditation, so all of those factors right now, we all, people are struggling to sleep because they're so stressed out. Of course. But meditation seems like one of the tools that I think could be the most useful to people right now. And I thought it was fascinating that you are introducing that tool to the children that you work with as well, because I know as an adult, I've had a lot of trouble being consistent with my meditation practice. I say it like it exists, but it it exists in theory, (laughs) but it's very hit or miss. And I think, man, if this had been introduced early in life as part of like the health hygiene routine it would be easier to be consistent with. What are the differences that you see in the benefits in toddlers that start to meditate versus the adults that are getting this education with them? Okay, so I'm going to address the question for toddlers, but I want to come back to your comment about your non-existent meditation practice because I hear that from my parents and my site staff all the time. And what I want to tell them is you don't realize that you're in the midst of your practice. And this is like such a beautiful growth point, but nobody realizes it when they're at that growth point. Cause I didn't either. When I first started my practice, I couldn't sit still for five minutes. I would get frustrated and I would do it once a week. If that, and I was like, yeah, I kind of sort of meditate, not really. And then I had a meditation teacher that taught me like, you're in your journey. You're on your path. 10 years from now, this is going to look very different 
And I hope that when somebody comes to you and say, this is how I'm starting and it's not enough, Mm -hmm. you'll remind them that it is enough. It's everything. Like just starting a practice is everything. Oh, that's tremendous. Yeah. Thank you. No, I never thought about it that way. I'm like, I'm just failing at this. Because not enough is a theme for us as humans. I don't know why that's plugged into the human psyche, but it's a pattern that we're trying to break. I know our generation is really trying to heal that message that we received from our parents and their parents and the parents before them. Never enough, not good enough, not enough. And it applies to everything, you know, not working hard enough, not being thin enough, not exercising enough, not making enough money, not having enough space in your apartment. Like we can plug that psyche into everything. And so what I do with my personal meditation practice, and it's different for everybody, is I often look for guided meditations each morning that are entitled, you are enough. Mm. (laughs) And that gives me so much in every facet of my life. That's what I love to bring to the kids. Because imagine what it would have been like if we were growing up and we had meditation and mindfulness as part of our preschool education. Like the coping mechanisms we would have now as adults in the middle of this global pandemic. Because life and generations move in cycles. So the toddlers I'm teaching now, the likelihood that they're going to experience a natural disaster is pretty high. And we hope that they're going to have the coping mechanisms now that help them chill. And when I go into toddler classrooms, of course, I'm not asking them to be cross-legged or asking them to have any sort of proper posture or whatnot. I'm just trying to give them a chill experience. So what I do is I turn the lights off and I put them in one position in particular, which is called legs up the wall. And they love it because I take them from their seated position on their reading carpet and I drag them across the carpet up to the wall. So it's a little bit of fun interaction. And then I place them with their legs high and their body laying on the carpet. And what that does is it increases circulation. So before I start talking, they're already absorbing the environment and connecting to the fact that the lights are off. It's time for me to close my eyes or soften my gaze without me having to give those cues. It happens. And their legs are up. Their blood is circulating more efficiently. And so their bodies feel relaxed. And you start to see them open their heart by like expanding their chest on the floor. And you start to see them bend their knees without cue. They're just getting their own body comfortable by listening to their internal cues because I've set the space for stillness because I shut the Mm -hmm. light and because I, you know, got them to a position where their legs are above their heart. And that's really what it is. You take a toddler and you teach them for two to five minutes what it's like to create a quiet, dark, still space. And they know intuitively how to keep it going for themselves. So it's much easier for them then than for adults. Oh, we're hot messes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, if you're an adult born after 1980, or before I should say before 1980, like I am, like, you know, we grew up with parents who are raised by depression era parents. So we were not raised with stillness. We were raised with fear. Yeah. You know, financial fear, body image fear. The list goes on and on, but we're raised to worry, which is why we're seeing a huge surge of anxiety and depression and related medications, you know, in our generation. And I'm not excluded from that. 
It's interesting because I've been seeing all these memes and all these things on TikTok, basically saying millennials have just been traumatized by one once in a lifetime event after another from (laughs) us being fairly young when 9-11 happened and then the big recession and now everybody still got student loan debt and it's just one thing after another after another. But then as I'm going through these posts and thinking, oh, yeah, isn't that funny? I'm like, wait a minute. All the boomers are still right here with us. Like they're going through all of this as well. And some of them, in addition to all of this, still have the grief of remembering like a ton of their friends not coming back from Vietnam. So it seems like the hits just keep on coming. And I wonder when's the last time anyone had like a good hundred years where there wasn't just a ton of drama. Maybe we're just not used to it. I don't know. Cause I was like, I don't know. I think everybody's gone through so much trauma. It's no wonder that we pass this on and we're all so anxious and fearful because it's hard to give somebody something you don't have. So if you are fearful, you may try and shield your children, but they might, be fearful too. Like that's just how it goes. I mean, we're all going to experience love and fear and every emotion on the spectrum in between in our lifetime, regardless of how chill the universe becomes, hopefully, you know, more and more with time. I think that we're here to learn the lessons. And when we learn to choose love over fear, when we learn to trust over distrust, trust that there will be enough, trust that there will be enough food, that there'll be enough money, that there'll be enough shelter. You know, it creates more community and collaboration. There is a we in wellness. There is an I Mm. in illness. And I think that when we are very internally focused, and not to say, you know, as a negative, like when we go in, I'm saying when we're internally focused in fear, when we're thinking, I have to protect myself, it's not safe outside. Like there's not a community mentality, which is so easy to fall into. I fell right into it as soon as COVID started that we get disconnected and we're weaker. Hmm. But when we start to connect, we're stronger. And I mean that in a metaphysical sense, our immune system builds when we feel connection, a 20 second hug can decrease your blood pressure by 20 points. You know, when we Hmm. talk about connecting the metaphysical and the science with what we know intuitively to be true, that we're connective creatures. And it helps us physically and emotionally when we work together, whether it be on a podcast or on a Zoom meeting or over the phone or you know via Skype or whatever. Blessed technologies we have now that are getting us through this time where we can't be more than six feet you know, close together. Then I think that we're going to come out of this stronger because we learned new ways to connect. Well, that's a beautiful thought because I have worried a lot about people who are isolated right now, physically isolated, because I do think we're very communal and being in physical proximity to other people also seems to be health promoting and single people or some of the elderly people who aren't on the first floor and their assisted living center can't even, they're not supposed to leave their room and they can't really have visitors even come to the window. So I just wondered is this a good proxy for that? But I guess if you are looking at ways to be of service and to take that focus off of yourself and your feelings of isolation, that that really helps with feelings of connectedness too. That makes sense. 
I mean, the assisted living setting is such a challenging setting. That's actually where I started my career when I was 25. And I lasted all of one year because when my first patient passed away, I cried in the bathroom for half an hour. And I honestly give so much gratitude to the RDs that work in clinical settings, particularly assisted living with end stage of life patients. And for all of the frontline workers in healthcare right now who are working the RCU with COVID patients, it's, I can't imagine coping with death on a daily basis. And we had a site staff worker at one of my childcare sites in Queens who had a terrible exposure to COVID that left him in the ICU. And while we were receiving an update from his ICU nurse, he passed away. So like, I probably cried on and off for a week and a half. <laughs> and there are, I think there are, you know, really like gifted individuals on earth that are peaceful and calm and just, you know, really gracious when it comes to end stage of life and being in an assisted living or ICU environment. For me, that really threw me into health promotion. And I always said, like, I want to live as long as I can with quality of life and independently. So for people that are living independently, of course, it's a challenging time because you're on your own and we're, you know, missing connection. But it is a great time to do social distancing walks together. It is a great time to meet on the street and walk six feet apart and still be able to have a conversation and see a face, you know, even if it's only the eyes behind your N95 mask. You know, it is so important to do what we can. Like, we're so blessed in our building here in Harlem. We have a rooftop. So we can meet our neighbors at 7 o'clock when we all go to clap for the frontline workers in New York every evening and see each other's faces and clap together and bring our pots and pans and show solidarity for the people on the front lines. It's just really a cool thing. It makes us feel like we're not locked in our apartment and that we still have neighbors and that we're still part of a community. And like this pandemic hasn't changed all of that. It's just mm. shifted the way that we interact. That makes me feel hopeful that if this goes on for a lot longer than we were thinking, we can adjust and we can keep working to make things better. We just have to be creative and look I for ways to support each other. Yeah, you know, I would say like hope comes from embracing your hot mess. You know, the days that I cry, the days that I'm depressed, the days that like, I can't believe that we're experiencing so much illness and death in New York City in particular, that it feels overwhelming and I don't want to get out of bed and I don't want to take the covers off and start the day and, you know, start Zoom meetings and phone calls and program development. I think, okay, like today's a hard day. But quite honestly, today is one of my favorite holidays. It's Cinco de Mayo. And I have fresh margarita fixings and tacos waiting for me after we close our podcast. <laughs> I was like getting all boohoo about, because this is one of my favorite holidays and we usually go out, but my husband has set up in the driveway and he's having a driveway party and he <laughs> measured out. He was very generous. He went for eight feet. So they're going to be yelling at each other out there. Yeah. So it's, it's cool to see people making it work. I, I was born and raised in California and I practiced there for five years before I moved to Manhattan. And I mean, to have outdoor space right now, to have private outdoor space is such a gift. I mean, I 
can't even imagine. You know, I talked to my mom mm-hmm. who's in Los Angeles and she's laying out by the pool. Granted, you know, it's not vacation. Like she feels isolated. She misses connections. She misses my brother and the kids. But to be able to go into your backyard and lay on a lounge chair and go for a swim is such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some people have struggled with guilt over feeling like they're not suffering enough when other people are suffering. Oh, yeah. yeah. Survivor's guilt is real. Survivor's guilt is real. It's Because we are so connected. It's hard to feel calm or happy or joyful when you know that people all around you are suffering. And, you know, there is a way for us to be of service without connecting to heavy energy. Like we can sympathize without empathizing and just put that energy when you feel like you want to help and you don't know how to help into your own personal gift. Like my brother's a mortgage loan broker and he's helping people refinance their homes right now in a time where it is so crucial to have that cash and that break in your monthly bills. Yeah. So it's like everybody has a talent and right now use whatever talent you have to make life easier for other people. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I see where you're definitely doing that with your own practice. So that makes sense that that's helping you manage. Yeah. When we first found out that we were going to have to pivot to remote programming, you know, of course I put together all the materials and we were going to first and foremost roll out with restorative yoga classes and cooking classes and have this entire virtual platform, you know, and we're ready for that. We've set it up, but really what we've been doing over the last two months is having one-on-one sessions with our staff. And the questions we ask first are, how are you feeling? How are you sleeping? Like what's happening with your daily lifestyle habits and behaviors? And everybody's feeling really heavy. You know, they're not sleeping well. They're waking up groggy. They're going to comfort foods, myself included. I can't remember the time before COVID where I picked up a gallon of Briar's Mitten Chip ice cream like I did when I was a kid. And that's been in our grocery cart nearly every week over the last eight weeks (laughs) because it just feels familiar. And it feels comfortable. We forget that our senses connect us to a time, typically in childhood, that felt safe. And so when we taste with our tongue or we smell with our nose or we touch with our hand, you know, those heightened senses connect us to memory. I keep telling people dietitians are not the food police. Like we're not here to tell you, you know, oh, this is a time where you really shouldn't be stringent about the food that you intake because you have to boost your immune system. No, this is the time where you need to relax and build immune system through having a positive relationship with food, having everything in moderation, not beating yourself up, relaxing around your lifestyle and, you know, allowing for imperfection. Absolutely. And then knowing too, that we don't know what's coming next. So trying to stay present and enjoy what is happening right now as much as possible instead of worrying about the ice cream that you ate. (laughs) You know, you really should be trying to stay in the moment. So I actually started journaling on a public platform. I've been keeping a daily journal. It's a food and mood journal that I assign to a lot of my clients where you have to journal your stresses and successes, your sleep quality, 
your hydration status, your nutrition intake for the day, and your exercise for the day. And so I started journaling on Facebook May 1st to model for all of my clients and say, hey, I do this too. And Mm. I'll do it on a public platform just to let you know that there's a hot mess in all of us in the midst of COVID-19. I remember one day I was journaling and like the stresses and successes section was nearly a page. And I was like, we lost a staff member and I cried. I read about a five-year-old daughter of frontline workers in New York City who passed away from complications of COVID and I cried. My cousin's husband went to grab his medication, slipped on a stair, hit his head, Mm. brain bleed, passed away last week. And I cried. And then I took a few minutes to think about how guilty I felt about eating mint and chip ice cream. And then I laughed. (laughs) I was just like, it was just one of those beautiful moments where I caught myself in a really heavy period, thinking about how light and ridiculous we can be sometimes. Yeah. And and it's really like, that's the human condition. There's just so much that goes into how we process everything. And when you can't just isolate the thoughts and filter out all the previous foolishness. So all the baggage that we have with food comes with us into the crisis and all the issues we have with stress management comes with us. And it really is a lot, but if we can be self-aware enough to kind of catch ourselves making it even harder to get through the day, then that's really helpful. I think we're raised by generations who think that negative motivation is motivation, mm. that the beat up, that, you know, the the beat down that we give ourselves is what will motivate us to make positive behavior changes. And it never works. Negative motivation is not sustainable. That's why diets don't work. You know, we usually go to diets when we're feeling desperate. You know, instead of just putting on the thinking cap of like, okay, you know, I could cut back on this and increase this. We're like, oh, I got to do keto or I've got to do Atkins or, you know, I've got to do Barry's boot camp and I've never exercised before, you know, (laughs) or I'm going to do orange theory. It burns 800 calories a session, you know, and I haven't worked out in six months. These are where I see injuries and illnesses myself, you know, when I was younger and now with my clients, like I see my clients find themselves And what feels like a desperate situation because they've gained 20, 30, 40, 60, 70 pounds and they want to take drastic measures. And it's really drastic thinking that gets us into those situations. You know, I always remind myself that our relationship with our plate is very similar to our relationship with ourselves. So are we all or nothing? Are we feast or famine? Because that's what gets us into trouble. Like, or do we allow for a little bit of everything? Do we allow for shades of gray? Like, do we eat ice cream with a smile without guilt? Well, how do you communicate that to somebody who feels like this is an emergency? So that person who wakes up and realizes nothing fits. I've gained a hundred pounds. I need to starve myself. How do you help somebody whose head is in that space relax and realize It isn't an emergency and you can gently pursue healthful habits without focusing on your weight because it took a long time to get there. And honestly, based on what we've seen with diets, we can't ever guarantee you 
what's going to happen what, once you change your habits. We don't know if your weight will go down or if you'll maintain. What do you say to somebody like that? Uh, the first thing I say, honestly, is I've been there. Like whether you're four pounds up or 44 pounds up, everyone knows what it feels like to feel heavy in your skin. You know, and especially with female clients, it's been so ingrained in us that beauty fits a certain mold and it's a size, you know, X to X. It's not, you know, a larger size It, you know, beauty doesn't look like this. So it's like when I talk to a lot of my female clients who are like, you know, this is an emergency. I'm like, hey, everyone knows what it's like to feel that way, but it's not the reality. Like, especially with my clients are not sick. I work with so many high body weight clients that are very healthy. They have low blood pressure. They have low cholesterol. They have low blood sugar that, you know, they're healthy. Thankfully, they're just carrying extra weight. And so they're experiencing stress and anxiety around it. Exactly. Because we as a society have an image of what healthy should look like. We don't distinguish between skinny and healthy. And that's what creates so much negative body image and our negative relationship with food. And so what I tell my clients is, A, yes, like, I don't know what it's like to gain 140 pounds, but I know what it's like to gain 40 pounds because I suffered through two miscarriages. And in the wake of those losses, I was very depressed. I was in a very heavy time in my life. I gained 20 pounds with each miscarriage. And while you feel that your body's an emergency, what really needs to heal is your head and your heart. Hmm. And when we're emotionally light, we become physically light. And I don't, in my experience in 15 years as a health educator, see it happen in reverse. Like, Hmm. I know we all want to start with the physical. So, okay, once I lose the weight or once I get a six pack or, you know, once I, my triceps are cut and you can see the definition then I'll be happy. It doesn't work. I've never seen it. I've never seen someone make a physical transition. And then like clockwork, the emotional and mental transition happens as well. If you're fortunate, you're working simultaneously on your physical health and your mental health. So you're developing positive self-talk while you're developing healthy behaviors, like, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables and you know, regular physical activity, no restriction, a lot of, you know, variation and moderation, then then you're really in great shape. But I always recommend therapy to my clients. Sometimes I tell them you'll be better served with a psychologist than you will with the nutritionist. Because as soon as you learn to be kind to yourself, like engaging in healthy behaviors is going to become easier. You're going to see eating an apple as a kindness, not as a necessity. Hmm. That's really profound. And I bet people hate to hear that. Oh, they hate it. Oh, especially in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Is therapy not as popular up there? Well, I feel like. Therapy is very popular here, but they don't want their nutritionist to cross over into mental health. They want me as their dietitian and personal trainer and yoga instructor to tell them how to burn the most calories in the least amount of time and lose the maximum amount of weight. And so, you know, it's like what I'm telling them is like, yeah, you can quick fix yourself for your high school reunion or for your, you know, cousin's wedding. But the rebound weight gain is so frequent. And that 
that variation is so hard on the body, it actually slows metabolic rate. And of course, it's emotionally depressing and mentally defeating that you're much better off to just take a step tomorrow. So when you're in that emergency state where you're feeling desperate and like things need to change tomorrow, one behavior change tomorrow will make you feel better and write it down. I woke up this morning and I went for a 10 minute walk and had a tall glass of water before I started my day. Boom. You're already on your journey. You walked for 10 minutes. You had a tall glass of water. Boom. You just hit nutrition and hydration and exercise all in one shot. I love that. That's really, really useful. Where do we follow you online so we can keep seeing how things are progressing with your practice and with this new feeding model? Awesome. So lemorecursedooley.com is my website. And on my website on the face page has my Facebook link. And that's my, you know, kind of fun place right now because I'm journaling daily. And so all of my clients get to see, you know, the ins and outs of, you know, my personal routine as, you know, I'm crying and laughing through COVID and, you know, what I'm struggling with, not just food wise, but routine wise, emotionally, mentally, you know, financially, professionally, you know, I'm putting it all out there because I really would love to see people do the same. So Facebook is my favorite place to connect right now because I love having people give feedback on my journals and submit their own journals and reply. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cause it's like, I want to see what other dietitians are doing, but more than that, I want to see what the rest of the world is doing. You know, I want to know if other people lost sleep the first month, like I did. Like, I want to know if people have started using the toolkit and they're now sleeping better in the second month of COVID. Like I am like, I want to know where people are. And I feel like Facebook has been used for so many negative body image and food related, diet related, fitness related, you know, facets of, you know, physical and mental health that projects such an unrealistic image. Mm. I'm like, let's, you know, change the evils of Facebook and let them be a platform for being real and something positive. Yeah, I don't know what happened because it felt like when everyone was getting on Facebook in undergrad many moons ago, that was the original <laughs> thing. It was very right. transparent, you know, warts and all, so you and your friends. And you know how young people like to overshare. Like, they do it <laughs> now and we did it back then. And now, yeah, it's a lot of this is the idealized version of my life that I filtered and decided to share. And it can really make people feel like their life is falling apart because they look at everyone else's and they're like, well, everybody else is doing great. No, that was after all the editing. Then it looked great. But we're all struggling right now. I mean, Facebook is a highlight reel. Yes. You know, so if you look at your life as a whole, Facebook is your, you know, captured moments, your post pictures. You know, and yeah, I know that, you know, oversharing has become cliche for the millennial generation. And, you know, TMI is becoming, you know, a well-used acronym. But, you know. I don't really even believe in TMI. I don't either. (laughs) Because especially like personal journey on a public platform, like it's a very vulnerable place to be. But that's what's really connects people. Vulnerability connects people. What disconnects people is images of perfection. The highlight reel is what disconnects people. 
and makes them not want to reach out and look inward and judge and compare. But if we're all laying out raw, that's when the real conversation and connection happen. That, you know, that the whole Me Too movement spread like wildfire because women just wanted to know that somebody else has been in their shoes. Right. I went through that too. I felt that too. And, you know, we can create Me Too as a negative or a positive based on the way it's been trending. But really, Me Too has always been positive when it comes to relating to another human experience. Right. And especially... So yeah, when my clients are like, I'm having a really rough. Yeah. To know that the numbers are so high and to know that all this time you had no idea who was having a parallel experience to your own. Yeah. That is a tremendous healing and a powerful way to connect with other people that we just weren't ready for before. So yeah, that's a good model for us. Thank you. I've always believed that the universe brings together broken hearts to heal each other. So it is just astounding to me how many women I've met since I've miscarried that have experienced the same type of loss. Yeah. Almost every, it seems like almost everybody. Because when I had a miscarriage and I started to tell people about it, there wasn't anyone who hadn't had one. And I'm like, that's funny because no one ever said anything. And we don't talk about it on Facebook. Can you imagine if a social media platform like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter had, you know, regular conversations about such a common, devastating occurrence for the female population? You know, we we talk about it almost as if it's a procedure as opposed to the loss of a child, which, you know, any woman who's been through it knows it's the loss of a child. Yeah. And it's very odd because it's a someone that no one else has met. So the grief is just for you pretty much and possibly your partner, depending on how real it was to them. So yeah, it's an interesting experience. Yeah. It's a very lonely grief. And you know, you can have the most amazing partner in the world, but to have felt that child in your body and to lose that feeling is a grief that nobody will understand other than you. Or perhaps somebody that too has gone through it. And, you know, the same is true for, you know, adult children that have lost parents to cancer. You know, to see somebody with a terminal illness lose their independence and their quality of life in their end stage Mm. is one of the saddest experiences in the world. But the more that I talk about it, the more that I connect to other people my age who have lost their parents at a young age due to a terminal illness. And the fact that they can relate and they know about the chemo and, you know, the illness that comes with and the radiation and the depression and all that caregiving. Like it really does feel good to know somebody else is with you is like, you know, like you said, on a parallel path. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm going to cut this conversation short before I start crying. I know. I was (laughs) like, I've been watery eyed. I'm so excited to bring this information to everybody and just your insights. This has all been very helpful. I think this is really going to have a good impact on people who are struggling to, to cope right now. And I'll include your links in the show notes so they can keep up. Thank you so much. Sally. I want to say that I think this amazing connection happened between the two of us. Because I was looking for other RDs when I felt lost at the start of COVID. 
And I found you randomly on LinkedIn and I saw that you were school nutrition. And even though you were in not in New York, and I know there's different regulations for school nutrition in every state, I thought maybe the school nutritionist knows what she's doing because I don't right now. Mm. And the fact that I reached out in a moment of vulnerability and fear and, you know, wanted to connect led to us having a conversation, creating this podcast, like a connection that I think is going to go well beyond today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. There's nothing to add. That's perfect. (laughs) It's cool. Oh, that is so good. I hope you found that as helpful as I did. I really love how collaborative we are in this community, even in crisis. People who are a little bit deeper into this or at the epicenter of the crisis in our country are thinking of others and how they can help the rest of us as we move through this. Please reach out to me on social media and share any creative insights or uh, approaches that you have come across during your management of this crisis that you would like to share with others. My handle is at School Nutrition RD on Facebook, Instagram, and now TikTok. I have tried to balance some episodes that are focused on needs that we may have right now because of the crisis with some more evergreen, kind of lighter episodes. But the next couple of weeks, I have a good bit of content that is focused on managing through the crisis. I've been lucky to be able to get in touch with people who are willing to share their time and their insights with us. So next week, we will have Jennifer McNeil on the show from Lunch Assist. They have created a lot of tools to help districts manage through the crisis. And she has a lot of insights to share about waivers and emergency procurement, things of that nature. So you're not going to want to miss it. As always, the only feature of the show is that you share it with others. All right. See you next time.